Welcome to Find Myself Free, the podcast. I'm Ellie Young, alcohol-free life coach, mom, and athlete. I'm dedicated to helping others change their relationship to alcohol by sharing my journey of transformation. Fascinated by my own capacity for change after decades of gray area drinking, I'm passionate about sharing what I've learned from neuroscience and positive psychology to help you break free from the drinking cycle and unlock your true potential. Hear my personal stories of triumph and struggle as I navigate raising two boys, finding myself after 40, building a business, and doing it all alcohol-free. From women's health and cycle syncing to fasting and biohacking, this podcast is your roadmap to a healthier, purpose-filled life that starts with changing your relationship to alcohol. It's time to embrace change, find balance, and create the life you were meant for. Welcome to Find Myself Free. Hello, hello, and welcome back to Find Myself Free. I'm your host, Ellie Young, and today I'm going to be talking about a topic near and dear to my heart. Um, Can we protect our kids from substance abuse? So this is a really emotionally charged topic for me. I think when I became alcohol-free, the next challenge for me and my biggest worry was that I was somehow going to pass this on to my kids. And, um, you know, it, it stems from a lot of fear. And even though I was never kind of a, a fall down drunk, a classic, you know, what one would call an alcoholic, um, I, I struggled a lot and I made a lot of mistakes with alcohol that I don't want my kids to make. And so I am coming at this now, not with the idea that I know what's right and I am going to tell you how to talk to your kids about alcohol and how to do things. I Just more of this open curiosity about how does one approach it now? Um, there are so many studies coming out saying kind of these old methods of the way our parents groomed us into drinkers, thinking that there was a safe way to do it you know, everything's kind of been turned on its head when it comes to that. And so I'm going to share a lot of that with you today. And so, you know, it's been on my mind a lot. My my son is 12 and a half years old. And article came out by Marie Holmes in the Huffington Post. And it was titled, you know, should we let our kids drink under our own roofs, you know, with this idea that we are going to kind of teach them the safe way. Um, so it this article talks about, you know, kind of debunking a lot of these myths. And also, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, understanding our own genetics versus epigenetics, you know, that's the nature versus nurture argument, which I think if you haven't thought about that, and you haven't talked to your kids about that, maybe, maybe it is something that needs to be part of your conversation as it relates to alcohol, is to not just hide these skeletons in the closet um, of the family history, if there is one. And I'm kind of curious how many families don't have any skeletons in the closet because most everybody I talk to has some someone with alcohol, um, alcoholism, though I don't really like that word, um, or a substance use. And, and, you know, because alcoholism cannot really be diagnosed, it's more of a self-diagnosis or something other people just call you. That's why it is kind of this gray area. Um, but most people have somebody in their family line. And um, I'm also going to talk a lot about, you know, parenting attitudes towards this topic. And um, 
this is where I might, you know, ruffle a few feathers because this is something I do feel a little more strongly about now is the permissiveness of alcohol use in the household. And, um, but again, I'm learning as I go. This is my first time with a preteen and negotiating the environments of parties and things that he's going to get exposed to. And a lot of my behavior does come from a really emotionally charged, fearful place. And I don't, I know I need to continue to educate myself so that I'm not reacting out of this kind of fearful place, but I am really considering the science and the facts and how ultimately understanding that I can't control what my kid is going to do. I can't control. He has to learn to make his own decisions, his own choices. And there is going to be countless influences out there, but I can control my influence. I can control what he sees and what he hears from me and the experience in our home as it relates to alcohol. And so that is something I'm going to talk to you about today is, is paying attention to the risk factors that may put your child at risk for developing a substance use disorder. And, but more importantly, what are the protective factors that we can cultivate and we can, you know, offer to our kids to help offset any risk factors that perhaps we cannot control like our genetics and whatnot. Um, so I'm going to get into it again. This, the, a lot of these myths were brought to my attention by an article by Marie Holmes in the Huffington Post. And another author that I highly recommend you checking out is <clears throat> Jessica Leahy's book, The Addiction Inoculation. So I'm going to be citing a lot of s- statistics from that book today. And that book is very powerful. I've read it twice now, and I'm reading it again to continue to keep this information top of mind as I approach, you know, talking about drugs and alcohol with my son and as he's 12 and a half years old, seventh grade. Um, so let's first talk about some of these myths that we hear most parents when they go into these conversations with their kids. So the first myth most people say is, you know what, they're going to drink anyway. So it's better that it's done under my roof and under my guidance and that I can teach them, you know, the proper way, the safe way to, you know, partake in the culture of drinking. So a lot of people might allow a glass of wine for a special event, uh, you know, a holiday, maybe when they're 16, 17. This is how my family was. In fact, I have a very vivid memory of me and my two best girlfriends sitting around our dining room table with my dad. And it was around Christmas time. And we were all wearing these silly Christmas like snow hats um, and that kind of Velcroed under your chin. And mine was a moose. And my dad had poured us wine into these pewter goblets that belonged to my grandmother. So they looked like something out of the medieval times. And we had gotten permission from my friend's parents and no, no one was drinking. And they were spending the night. So they thought, you know, they had done all of the due diligence of keeping this a safe experience. And it was, it was a funny, positive night. I have a picture of it somewhere. We all had rosy cheeks, but we were probably six, we were 16 years old. And, you know, this idea that one, I think it's the myth is that you can teach someone 
how to manage a toxic substance. And that's a little bit, you know, misleading because if you're having this conversation with your kids in a way that is, you know, hey, this is an adult behavior and it's something that is dangerous. You have to be very, very careful with this stuff and only have a little, you know, and only and always have water in between. Think about all the things you would teach your child if you were like, from all my years of drinking, this is the wisdom I would pass on to you, right? But unfortunately, there's zero evidence that doing this actually works, that this actually prevents your kids from binge drinking, that it prevents them from having any type of dangerous behavior as it relates to alcohol. And unfortunately, all of the studies show that the earlier you are exposed to drinking, the more problems come from it. Um, So here's a quote from Jessica Leahy. A kid who has their first drink in eighth grade, they have an almost 50% lifelong risk of developing substance use disorder. If it's pushed by two years into 10th grade, it will drop by half. And if it's pushed by another two years until they're 18, it drops again by half. And at that point, we're down to just about the national average for people with substance use disorder, end quote. So that is significant, that you can drop drop your risk from 50% in eighth grade, drinking in eighth grade, all the way down to, so that goes into 25%, half again, 13%, and then half again. So um, significant. The point is here that pushing it until they're of a legal age is it makes a statistical significance in whether or not they will develop a substance use disorder. And how I like to picture this is that, and I'll get into the a little bit of the genetics here, is that not a lot of people, when they are introducing alcohol, are going to talk about addiction or talk about a family history. Um my family certainly didn't, even though we had addiction, alcoholism on both sides of my family, but nobody talked about it. It was almost like, well, isn't it a shame that this happened to them? Never could happen to you because you have these genes and this is a dangerous substance and it can happen to anybody. Nobody had that conversation with me. And from what I have read, and I've done it quite a bit, I'm trying to understand the genetic link with addiction. And they so far have not been able to prove that there is a gene for alcoholism. There are several genes. I think there's about 12 that can indicate whether or not somebody would have, you know, a substance use disorder, but they have to be turned on. These genes have to be influenced and turned on by their environment. And that's where epigenetics comes in. So just because you're born with alcoholic parent does not mean you will become an alcoholic. You have, yes, you're more likely that the fact that you have the gene and the fact that you're being raised by an alcoholic parent is much more of an indicator. That's what's called an ACE, an alternative childhood event being raised by someone with a substance use disorder because the home is chaotic and what you're witnessing is chaotic. So those factors are so intertwined, your genetics and your epigenetics, that they truly can't pinpoint like, hey, if you have this, you're guaranteed to become 
an alcoholic. So that is good news and it's bad news. For one, it's, it tells me that one, you're not doomed by your genes, that you are in the driver's seat, you are in control, you can change your life, you can change your environment, and you can turn on and off genes um, to support your to support your life. And it's also a bad thing in the sense that if you think you're protected because you don't have any alcoholics in your family and you've never had bad drinking going on around you, that doesn't mean that you can drink as much as you want and as often as you want and never develop a problem. Alcohol is an addictive substance and it's addictive to all human brains. Um, so paying attention to that and having that conversation with your kids, understanding, hey, the cards might be stacked against you when it comes to drugs and alcohol. I will have that conversation with my kids and say, hey, on both sides of our family, we have had people with alcoholism and substance use disorders. So this is something that you need to watch out for. You know, this this might be something that you can get hooked on easier than most people. And again, I also would paint a picture that what one would consider an alcoholic, this, this image of a person with a brown bag hiding their bottle and losing their job and, um, you know, their marriage and getting demonized, that isn't necessarily what alcoholics look like. You know, it can just be somebody who is chronically using it for any variety of reasons, but on the outside is maintaining a pretty stellar life. There is a lot of people like that. And I was one of them. I was able to function, but alcohol was not serving me. It was making me sick. And <clears throat> I made the choice to give it up without having to have some really awful rock bottom or terrible thing happen to me. And so I'm really lucky, but it's something to consider. And it's something I still don't understand why none of these conversations were had when I was a kid. I think it's just the difference in the time, the era that it was more something you don't talk about, you know, addiction, alcoholism were dark family secrets that people just kind of thought, Oh, what a shame. And they never really talked about anything else, the science of it and the heritability her of it. Um, <clears throat> so let me get into another, another myth is that, Kids need to learn how to drink in moderation so that they don't binge later. So again, this is this idea that you're going to be the one to teach them moderation and that they need to start young. They need to start earlier so that when they go off to college, they're not going to, you know, go on some binge and have a whole bunch of awful things happen to them. So they're like, oh, let's start training them now to be drinkers. Again, all of the studies show. This does not work. In fact, it only, the opposite works. The younger you start, the more likely you are to develop a substance use disorder. And that's not to say that every kid who tries alcohol at age 16 or 17 is going to develop. It's just statistics, just that, that's all these are statistics. Um, but here's some, here are some more for you. So this is from Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago, the medical director there, her name is Dr. Maria Ramondar. Trends have fortunately been going down for the past couple of decades. They peaked in the 90s, she explained. 
Monitoring the Future, a survey of drug and alcohol use in the U.S. found in 2018 that by the end of 12th grade, so senior year, 59% of the students had consumed more than a few sips of alcohol. Eh, that's kind of a weird statement. And 42.9% of the 12th graders reported having ever been drunk. Okay, so 40, let's just say 43% have been drunk. That's not even half. That means the other half of students aren't getting drunk in high school. So this, that means that they, and statistically, that, that group is safer. So we, one, we don't need to assume that our kids are necessarily going to drink and that we need to be the ones to teach them and that we need to be the ones, we need to start training them now for this heavy drinking that they're going to do in college. Um, there is another way. And so that's promising to me. And I think even more so, like this was a 2018 study. I think more and more trends are, are continuing to go down for young people drinking trends. Now, I think that might be because other drugs are going up, perhaps the accessibility of pot, weed, and psilocybin. I do think a lot of people are microdosing now these days um, and drinking less. So <clears throat> I would, I would wonder if the correlation, the drop in drinking means that ju that just moved over to weed and, and psilocybin. Um, so again, I think this idea that you need to help your kid train how to be a proper drinker. You know, what would you tell your kid about drinking and, and how, and, and trying to understand the science of it, that you believe you can control it um, can you control it? Like, have you controlled it perfectly in your past? And this, do you really have that as a skill down pat? Or are there nights where you still drink more than you want to, or you're drinking for sad reasons and, and, you know, the coping mechanism. And so when you are having these notions of educating your kids about alcohol and grooming them to be safe, you know, drinkers, you really need to examine your own relationship with alcohol. And this, this kind of gets a little fuzzy for me because, again, I don't want to tell anybody how they, how they should raise their kids. And, you know, just a couple years ago, I would have thought that, oh, you know, I'm going to have them drink in my home and this is how it's going to be safe and blah, blah, blah. That's the way I was raised. I, I honestly drank in my basement in my high school years. Not all the time because I played a ton of sports and I rarely had time to party. But when I did, I was able to do it in the basement of my house. My parents never bought us alcohol, but I think I think they knew and that they were somehow felt safer because I was in our home. I wasn't driving around. I wasn't sneaking around. But by the way, I did do that as well. And I would also like to point out the contract that most parents have with their kids about like, hey you know, we don't want you to drink, but if you do and you're in a bad spot and you need a ride, we'll always come get you. No questions asked. You won't be in trouble. I had that contract too, but did I ever call them and actually utilize that? No, I still rode in cars with people who had been drinking. I still, you know, snuck around and hid everything. So again, I think it just, it, backs up these studies that this permissiveness in the household, this kind of idea that you're going to culturally teach your kid, unfortunately, it's, it's not effective. Um, maybe you feel better about it and it, 
And it allows you also not to have to confront your own relationship with your drinking. Because, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a little biased because I, I come from this place of where my drinking was bad. I don't know. Most people I feel like haven't really considered their relationship with their, with alcohol. I think they think it's totally benign. Um, everything's fine. Everything's fine. But they do, they still drink perhaps in unhealthy ways that they haven't really considered. They haven't really linked up how they feel after. Um, and so that's just something I would, I would recommend is just investigating your own relationship with alcohol before you have this notion that you're going to be the one you're the expert to teach your kid how to do it properly. Um, so another myth that we can talk about here is, um, we should follow the, the lead of the European parents who allow kids and teens sips of sips or drinks at special occasions. Okay. So I've been debunking this myth for a long time. I I can't tell you how many times I've heard parents, especially when they hear what I do for a living. They're like, you know, but I'm going to let my kid have a beer. I let him have a sip and I da, 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 da. Um, Because this is what the Europeans do. And they have a much healthier relationship with alcohol. Wrong, false. So again, I'm going to quote Jessica Leahy here. The European Union as a whole has not only the highest levels of alcohol consumption in the world, but deaths attributable to alcohol. Okay, and she also notes that there, although there are a few exceptions here, certain countries have fewer alcohol deaths, this idea that all of Europe has a healthier relationship with alcohol, it's it's problematic, and it's just simply not true. Um, so this, they again, they, there's just no evidence that giving teens small amounts of liquor under our roof in this permissive kind of nature prevents them in fact, all we have evidence of is the opposite. The earlier you start, the quicker you're on this ramp. And I picture this ramp like a slope, right? The sooner you are, you get on that slope, you're going to be more progressed by a certain age. If you start at 16, by the time you're 21, you've been drinking for five years now. Maybe not drinking a lot, maybe just drinking once in a while with your friends. But at some point, you've you've been on the ramp longer than other people and you can get addicted faster. Addiction happens with frequency and volume over time. And then if you have um, these ACEs, these alternative child events, you can speed up that ramp considerably. That is when your drinking turns from it being perhaps like a social or celebratory thing to a coping mechanism. When the brain starts to use alcohol as a coping mechanism, and this can be, this is usually a subconscious thing. You don't really know that you're doing it. You're like, I'm stressed. I'm anxious. I need a drink. That little shift in your drinking behavior does ramp up the the, the rate towards an, an addictive relationship. So that is something to consider. Um, so that's the next thing I want to talk about is actually the risk factors that that we're watching out for with our kids versus the protective factors that you can that you can cultivate. So the risk factors um, are what I mentioned before, ACEs, traumas, alternative childhood events, and categorize these into um, three different categories. There is abuse, which can be emotional, physical, and sexual. Then there are household challenges, and this can be being witness to violence, 
witness to mental illness, substance abuse, or criminal behavior, and divorce or separation. And then they can be, uh, the third category is neglect, and that can be emotional or physical. So ACEs can happen to anybody, and they aren't always uh, visible, right? We you know, you assume this is only something that happens to poverty-stricken kids. No, they happen to every socioeconomic place, um, everyone. Um, so understanding, you know, if your kid has any of those ACEs. Another is um, your genetics and the epigenetics. So genetics would be, you know, what's happened to them in the culture. They're the nature versus nurture, the nurture part of that. Um Academic failure. Now, this one is tied considerably to untreated ADHD, and this is very um, near and dear to my heart because my 12 and a half, 12 and a half year old has ADHD. Um, and idle time can be a risk factor. Siblings, older siblings who use alcohol and drugs can be an influence, and um, parents with a substance use disorder. And so I'm going to go back to the ADHD thing. Uh, Another book, Gabor Mate, in his book, um, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the name of the book here, In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts, it's all about addiction. So he has some statistics related to ADHD that 35% of cocaine users in tab had ADHD, 40% of the alcoholics had ADHD, and 30% of the meth addicts had ADHD. They are twice as likely to fall into substance abuse, four times as likely to move from alcohol to other drugs, and more likely than the general population to smoke and gamble. So I am on high alert with this type of information um, with as it relates to my son because he has ADHD. And um, it's one of the b- main reasons why we decided to medicate him because he is seeking dopamine. Um, ADHD is a dopamine deficient state. So they crave it. They crave the stimulation, which is why they seek out drugs and alcohol. And they also lead lives where they feel like they're in trouble all the time. And their experience in the world is quite negative. His experience in school has been fairly negative until he until we got him medicated and he thought he was a bad kid. He was always in trouble. He couldn't sit still. Every teacher, you know, always had to put him on the outside of the circle so he could move around. He always had the wiggly chair. He thought he was a bad kid. And he actually characterized himself later. He said, mom, I was depressed in third and fourth grade. I was depressed. And the fact that he even knew what that word meant. And again, this was also during homeschool during COVID and at the height of my drinking and he was struggling and I was struggling because I couldn't help him. So part of my sobriety story is me getting alcohol free so that I could properly help my son and get him the help he needed. And instead of taking his uh, struggles personally, I could think clearly about it and the help he needed. And um, he's no longer hopeless. One of the other risk factors is hopelessness, that kids think they have no power over changing their circumstances. And um, 
So that is something that I now try to cultivate in him is a sense of hope, a sense of belief in himself. So the uh, protective factors that you can work to cultivate, um, let's go through those because this is where our efforts are, right? And again, no, we can't control what our kids are going to do, but we can control these things and instill as many protective factors in there as possible. And we can love them through all of this. So one of the number one things you could do is family dinners. I love this. Um, exercise is huge because it boosts dopamine naturally. Um, teams, having a coach, having teammates, um, self Efficacy. Now, I love this one because, again, this relates to my son's ADHD. Self-efficacy is the belief in themselves that they can execute things, confidence in their own ability, confidence in their behavior, that they can control their behavior, that they um, can motivate, that they can self-motivate, and that confidence that they can control their social environment. So self-efficacy, it encompasses a lot, but it's one of those things that you can help to cultivate in your child by a belief that they are in charge of their destiny and that they can make choices and decisions that can outcome their lives in in better ways. Um, Another key factor here is nature, getting your kids out in nature. And then an aspirational one definitely is meditation, getting kids to understand the concept of mindfulness And if they can work in a meditation practice, then you're getting all the stars, A++, because we all know how hard that is, even as adults, for us to do. Um, But if you can get your kid to embrace any any concept in that space, it is significantly helpful. So this is tough stuff. This is a really complicated um, job for parents to really pay attention to the risk factors, evaluate your own relationship with alcohol, and then work on instilling these protective factors. It's a tall order. I get it. And it's very top of mind for me. Um, One of the things that I'm really paying attention to as I dive into this data is I read from another guy that, you know, basically at the end of the day, drinking is a comfort sinking behavior, right? It relieves something for us. And for the kid, a lot of these things, they're drinking, they might be drinking or experimenting for the same reason. And they might get relief for any number of things. And it could be, it could be boredom. It could be they have too much time on their hands, right? That idle time, they could be bored and or it could be lack of confidence or courage right? Maybe they're shy, maybe they're insecure and they really just want to fit in and there's peer pressure and everybody's doing it and they just want to seem cool. Of course, that's always a huge factor. Or it could be anxiety, stress, pressure, perfectionism. I think this is along the lines of where my drinking stemmed from is as I was growing up, I put a ton of pressure on myself. I was a straight A student. I played all the sports and I was captain of all the teams. I was class president. I was homecoming queen. I really strived to be a perfect child. And I think alcohol, when I first started drinking, it allowed me 
to escape that, uh, that pressure for a bit and to kind of live out this alter ego, this kind of wild child who wasn't perfect, who was able to let, let their hair down and have fun and, and be a little crazy. And, you know, that's definitely, as I got into adulthood, I do know that my number one reason I drank was to cope with anxiety and stress. <clears throat> and then of course they could be numbing trauma. You know, if, if something really awful did happen to them and alcohol has become the way that they numb out from that. Um, so I, I am paying attention to all the things you have to know your kid, you have to be checking in with them. And that's why those family dinners are so important so that you recognize if there is something going on that they could be looking to self-medicate, right? And then teaching them healthy coping mechanisms. I think this was like the biggest gap in how we were raised is that we never learned healthy coping mechanisms. We were all taught that alcohol is a safe adult behavior that you get to participate in when you become of age. And then you know, don't worry about it. It's only an unlucky few that can develop an addiction or a problem. It's not you. And nobody ever really taught you how it happens, right? They just said, oh, this is all normal behavior. Drinking, socializing in college, binge drinking, this is all fine. Everybody's doing it. Nobody's out there warning you about what can happen and when the slippery slope begins and, and how alcohol can get so intertwined with your mental health. And that you don't know what comes first, the depression or anxiety or the drinking. Um, so we need to pay attention to what messages they've been fed about their drinking. I think times have changed so much. And we have an opportunity to not demonize alcohol. Again, I don't want to make it taboo. But you do have an opportunity to, to pull the wool off from over their eyes and expose the wolf in sheep's clothing and say, this is what alcohol really is. It's an addictive substance. This is what it's going to do to your brain. It's going to make you feel good temporarily. It's going to relieve that stress, that anxiety. It's going to make you feel like you're part of the in crowd momentarily. But for every high, there is an equal and opposite low. And explaining that to them so that they aren't duped into thinking that this is life's elixir. They aren't duped into thinking they need it to participate in the culture and that they need it to socialize and th that they need it to be brave. You have to expose the, the way this substance works in their brain. And I have another amazing book I want to recommend to you. And it's by Annie Grace. She is the author of This Naked Mind. It's the program that I am certified in. And she has written a kid's book called Buzz to Buzz Kill. How Alcohol and Dopamine Hack Your Brain. It's a picture book. It's small. It's short. And it does an excellent job of explaining the nature of alcohol to kids. It correlates it to like, you know, TikTok and how you can, or or overeating candy um, or overplaying video games and how you don't know why you can't stop. You just keep going and keep going. Um, this is dopamine. So this is um, a book that I have read to my kids a couple times and I just kind of leave it around the house and let them flip through it. So these are the conversations that I want to make more common and more regular. And when they're of the right age, I want to explain my alcohol journey and when my dependency began and how it shifted from being this thing that was totally a social party, 
you know, thing into kind of a darker coping mechanism that I hid. Um, And I want them to know all the nitty gritty about it so that they understand that this is in their genes. This is what it can do for you. You can be successful. You can be driven. You can be doing all the right things. And this stuff can still sneak up on you. And to just be on alert and be paying attention so that they're not going into it, again, pretending like none of this stuff exists because alcohol is so just indoctrinated into our culture. It is so, you know, ubiquitous with everything we do. So that's all I have for you today. It's a lot. And again, I just want you to know, like, I am with you. I am in it. This is my first time going through this. I am learning and I don't have it all right. I am humbled continuously by parenting a a preteen and I am so fearful and I want to make sure that I keep educating myself so that I can, I can come at this with information that, that helps me make better decisions. And it helps me, um, parent with a lot of intention and, um, so that I'm not just trusting that this world will take care of him because everybody else is doing it. And it's, Oh, he'll turn out fine. Every kid drinks, everybody, you know, what? might as well just do it in my home there. You know, just so you know what I plan to do, and this may evolve and I will update you if it does, but this is my plan. There will not be alcohol tolerated in our household or any underage drinking. We will not be, he will not be allowed to drink in my house until he is of age of legal age, 21 years old. I will still assume that he's probably going to experiment or, you know, try things. And so we will still have the clause that says, you know, we will come pick you up. No questions asked and um, keep you safe no matter what. And there will be no punishment. So I will still have that, even though I'm going to assume that he will be just like me. He will be sneaking around. Even in my permissive household, I still kept everything a secret from my parents. Um, so I'm going to fall on the information, fall back on this data and, and trust that is the more I can delay, delay, delay his drinking, the better chance he has. And, um, you know, that's me working on those protective factors. I'm going to be doing lots of family dinners and working on as many of those, you know, protective factors as possible. Also, um, I'm going to educate the shit out of him and it's not to scare him. It's just going to be like, Hey, yeah, this is alcohol. And this is exactly what it does to you. And Hey, guesses this. And I'm going to tell him my story. I'm going to tell him just how good it felt for me when I had my first drink. And I'm going to share with him all of the stupid things. I don't know if I'm going to share with him all the stupid things I did. I don't know if that's the right thing. If you have any tips or suggestions for me, share them with me. Um, I would love to hear your feedback on this episode because, you know, it takes a village. I would love to hear what people have done and what has worked for them. Um, All I have is this information. I'm going into this, you know, very fearful and, and knowing that, my experience and where I ended up, you know, and it took a long time to get there. Um, but the, the decade of my drinking was not healthy and it's not something that, you know, I, I believe it could have been prevented had I, had I 
had different beliefs about alcohol. Had I not been groomed my entire life to see it as kind of a relatively safe thing and then an, an expected thing that everybody was going to do. And how could you not drink? It would have been weird not to drink. Um, and so I recognize that. I recognize I don't want my kid to to be like a loner, you know, being like, oh, I can't drink and I'm going to be this outsider because of it. I really want to normalize the idea of not drinking, that it's okay and that it's cool. And like, you don't have to be a nerd or a square to like sit it out yet you, that it's, that it's okay, that it's a normal choice. And the best example of that he's going to have is in his own household that, you know, I'm going to normalize sobriety and I'm going to look cool and I'm going to make it look healthy. And he gets to see me helping others change their lives. Um, So that's definitely the best thing I know is that just it doesn't matter what I say to him, what he sees, what he sees me doing is what's most important. And that is my biggest why through all of this. My 12 year old is one of the biggest reasons I got alcohol free because struggling with him through homeschool was the why I drank to the max that I did at that moment in time and getting alcohol free was how I was able to help him. He saved me, and um, now I need to do my best to to help him through this phase of his life, make the right choices, and with his ADHD, the risk factors he has in his genetics, and um, I'm going to do my best, and I'm going to share it all with you so you can be there right along with me. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, if you want help, if you want to talk to me, if you want to work with me, I have one-on-one coaching opportunities. Just check out my website, findmyselffree.com. The new year is coming. This is when a lot of people take this on. And I would love to hear where you're at and what your goals are. And if you want to tackle this on your own, which is something I did originally in the beginning, my Brave program is a seven-day kind of boot camp kickstart your brick on your own time. It's a self-paced program. And, um, I recommend that if that, if you're just, you want to do this on your own at first, and then eventually you can talk to me if you want as well. So check out that all at findmyselffree.com. And as always, I am with you. You got this. Hey team, you've just listened to an episode of Find Myself Free. And if some part of this left you wanting more, if your curiosity has been piqued and your intuition is telling you, I'm ready for more, I'm ready to look at my relationship to alcohol and find out just how much it's holding me back, then check out my coaching offers at findmyselffree.com. For those ready to kickstart a change privately on their own time, I offer the Brave course a seven-day program to shift your mindset around alcohol and connect with your future self. This is chock full of all the information that was key to my transformation. If you're looking for additional support, I also offer one-on-one coaching. I worked with a coach for four months at the start of my alcohol-free journey, and it made all the difference. Being able to talk to someone who knew what I was going through and could help me navigate my new world gave me a foundation of support I could build on And it's a big reason why I'm a coach today. I want to help others find their freedom and level up their health. If this sounds good to you, then connect with me at findmyselffree.com. 
Listen to that intuition that was telling you you are meant for more. I'm with you. You got this.